because of the fact that you do not need an expert in order to deploy these uh, these type of devices you don't need an IT expert you just need someone who has a momentary access to a to an open USB port or to an open RJ45 connector somewhere along the way uh, to install this device so again it could be someone's mother or a or a teenager or a or you know without any prior uh, technical qualification Welcome to We Talk IoT, a regular series of podcasts from the editors of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. This podcast is brought to you by Avnet Silica in cooperation with Microsoft. Hi, I'm Tim Cole, the editor in chief of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. The world of IT and increasingly IoT is inhabited by some really nasty people who would just love to get their hands on your data. Bensi Ben Attar is chief marketing officer of a company you probably never heard of, and they like it that way. Sepio Systems was founded by a bunch of snoops, many of whom, like Bensi, used to work for the mysterious Unit 8200 at Mossad, Israel's fabled secret service. Unit 8200 has been called the foremost technical intelligence agency in the world, on par with America's NSA in everything but size. Bensi, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Tim, for having me. Your focus is on malicious hardware, rogue devices with mysterious names like Packet Squirrel or Plunderbug. They're physically plugged into networks where they listen and siphon off critical business info. Of course, that means the bad guy has to somehow get access to your premises, to your company, in order to install these devious devices. How do they do that? So uh, usually this will be achieved by either using an internal abuser, which could be as simple as uh, recruiting uh, the cleaning lady or someone who applies for a job in your facility uh, to gain physical access to, um, uh, to the enterprise's assets. Or it could be more commonly through the supply chain, uh, meaning instead of trying to force your way into a headquarter of a sensitive site, you could actually go up the chain and uh, look for those courier along the way or warehouse where the equipment is being stored and manipulate uh, that equipment before it be it's being delivered to the end customer. And these are physical devices like printers or, or servers or uh, network devices. What do they look like? So they come in various uh, various shapes. Some of them uh, are cocooned within uh, legitimate-looking devices. So it could be like a charging cable, like uh, in the case of a USB Ninja, which looks like a standard charging cable. They could be installed within a, a USB cup warmer, or they could be concealed inside the equipment itself. Some of the equipment, like printers, have sufficient uh, space to accommodate for additional uh, implants uh, that are installed in them. Um, well, maybe it's just me, but uh, I had really never before heard of this kind of scenario. I always assumed that hackers went through the Internet itself um, and they were sitting somewhere in Moscow or Beijing. And, and uh, you, your company says, no, the real threat is hardware. Is this totally new? No, it's not. Uh, it's not new. Uh- but what was previously, you know, state uh, state-owned capabilities with regards to manipulated hardware or manipulated firmware, is now at the at the hands of uh, of cybercrime organization or or state-sponsored activities. So they found it more easy 
for them instead of trying to force their way uh, against various cybersecurity products, which in fact are getting better in their grip on the infrastructure itself. They found it more easy to go through the window of uh, hardware devices. And for those pinpointed targets, it's the easiest way in. Of course, the first thing that you think of when you talk about breaking into your company late at night, but that is not necessarily the way the rogue hardware gets installed, is it? It could be, as you said, employers, partners, suppliers, maybe unsatisfied employees or people that you had to leave the company, but uh, unfortunately still have their passwords. Um, the question of deprovisioning employees is a big one. Who is the the the, the, the prime threat? The, the, what kind of person do I really have to be worried about? So first of all, uh, motivation for uh, for internal abuser. Let's first take the internal abuser issue. Internal abuser can come from a various motivation. It could be a hacktivist, uh, someone who who's against uh, nuclear power plants and he wants to shut down a nuclear plant. That could be someone, someone like this, or it could be someone for uh, financial reasons, uh, especially in financial downtimes. It is easier to find or recruit internal abusers that are motivated by uh, by money. And obviously, uh, the you know standard uh, threatening someone extorting someone, you know, everyone has, especially being a human being, everyone has a weak spot uh, that you can uh, that you can play around. And for those cybercrime organizations who operate in a similar manner to state-sponsored activities, uh, they find it very easy to tap into those weak points, human weak points, in order to uh, get their devices uh, implanted into the, into the enterprise. So is this kind of the hardware version of, of ransomware? Exactly, and some uh, some of the payloads that we've seen uh, running around are, are ransomware payloads because because of the fact that you do not need an expert in order to deploy these uh, these type of devices. You don't need an IT expert. You just need someone who has a uh, momentary access to a to an open USB port or to an open RJ45 connector somewhere along the way uh, to install this device. So again, it could be someone's mother or a or a teenager or a or you know, without any prior uh, technical qualification. And who makes these devices? So here, the 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 ecosystem is divided uh, by by several players. Obviously, there's uh, tools that are originated as uh, as PT tools. So those would be all those Hack Five devices, those Blunderbug and uh, Packet Squirrel and and Keycrock, all those devices that are. Legitimate as a penetration tools, but you know the boundary uh, between the being a, a PT tool and a hacking tool is is very very thin. So you know it's just a matter of perspective uh, in that sense. So uh, the other source for for those devices are actually the open uh, e-commerce website. So some of the tools can be found in uh, AliExpress or in Amazon. All you need to do is to buy the hardware for them, and then you can find multiple GitHub repositories that hold a specific firmware that allows IPO max spoofing or similar uh, uh, functionalities. And obviously, state actors where they can uh, form their own homebrewed uh, hardware devices, and those probably would be the hardest to detect. Um, how can I find one of these rogue devices? Are they usually found by just walking around and seeing there's something plugged into my computer that doesn't belong there? 
So first of all, it doesn't necessarily need, need to be plugged into somewhere because, for example, some of the hardware hacking is actually done by using existing vulnerabilities within your own equipment. So if you're using a combo wireless mouse of any sort, they are easily hackable without even touching your, your endpoint. They, they could be done completely remotely by standing in a in a building next uh, nearby or in a parking lot or something like that. And the other uh, point is that for network implants, again, you don't have to have direct access with the with the endpoint USB connection. You can put it somewhere on the network cable that connects to uh, to the endpoint, and that provides even a larger a number of uh, of options to the attacker because then you can place your attack tool somewhere along the cable, open up a duct cable somewhere, and put your device uh, implant in line, and that's uh, and that's about it. Sounds very scary. Of course, most companies have network protection and intrusion protection systems in place, not to mention firewalls and deep packet inspection and stuff like that. That's all software. How can I protect myself from rogue devices? So the the thing that's in common for all those uh, NAC solution or IDS solution is that they have visibility from layer two and above. That means that they can uh, detect all those devices that you know want to be visible either under uh, by spoofing another Mac or by the, using the legitimate Mac. The attackers are always smart and they understood that there's a visibility gap with regards to the physical layer. So they found a variety of uh, tools, some of them we've, uh, we've mentioned earlier, that provides them a kind of an invisibility cloak and allows them to operate at the physical layer be, without being detected by the solutions that operate at the upper layer. So those, uh, those devices cannot be easily uh, detected and you need, without any technology, specific technology and specific uh, detection algorithm, uh, it's all about uh, sheer luck. You know, you, you bumped into a, into a certain device uh, that was connected on a cable somewhere, and you've started asking some questions, and then you found out that's a, that's a rock device. Other than that, it's uh, it's all about uh, using the physical layer uh, technology. So you you got me really worried now. You know, uh, my mouse could technically be turned into a rogue device. Absolutely yes, and it will it will not only turn into a rock device, but it will keep the legitimate facade uh, of a legitimate device. So it will still present itself as a legitimate uh, mouse with the same original uh, characteristic that it had before, but now it will become a, a mouse plus plus because it will have some additional malicious activity that will not be picked up by the existing endpoint security or EDR solution. Mm. I've had difficulty sleeping at night before, but now I will probably lie awake all night. Tell me, how does Sepio help us solve the problem? So what we do is we analyze the physical layer characteristics because uh, one of the things that you uh, that you cannot tamper with or it's very difficult to tamper with are physical layer characteristics. So those would be the specific uh, implications of uh, of that specific piece of hardware that's being implanted somewhere. Now, every device has its own physical layer characteristics with regards to voltages and uh, uh, PoE parameters and uh, specific waveform characteristics. All of these characteristics are specific for that specific design of hardware. So in that case, a Raspberry Pi 3 will behave differently on the physical layer than a Raspberry Pi 4. 
and those physical layer characteristic uh, impairments and uh, uh, and singularities are the one that we are looking for in order to uh, uh, to detect and uh, make those invisible devices visible that means you have to be intimately familiar with almost every device in the world yeah and because of that because we assume that we are not familiar with and as i've mentioned earlier some of the devices are homebrewed that's where a second uh, algorithm kicks in which is a machine learning uh, based algorithm for all those uh, known unknowns that means that we analyze the entire physical layer characteristics of all devices if we get a hit on the physical layer uh, part then we can actually name the attack tool. If we see that there is something uh, from our uh, machine learning-based algorithm, we see that there is something there, we cannot name the attack tool, but we can uh, point the uh, the defender or the security team to the exact port where we found this uh, this implant, and then we will ask them to share that hardware metadata with us so we could update our fingerprinting uh, database. But we, we do not need to previously be familiar with all uh, all devices. Normally, the saying goes, the bad guys are always one step ahead of the good guys. Uh, how does Sapio's and your own history with Unit 8200 help you to outsmart them? So, like, you know, in cybersecurity, it's... Uh... You know, it's a it's a battle that will uh, that will be, never be won. So it's not about how we we defeat the the hackers or the attackers. It's just about how we can make our customers be less attractive for those uh, for those attackers. That means that we want to put them in a in a higher level of security, so that when the potential attacker uh, decides or evaluates their next target. We want them to choose another target than our customers because during the reconnaissance phase, the attackers will be very aware of all the security products that are installed within a, a given uh, enterprise. So we want to make sure that when they see that they have a CEPIO installed, uh, then they will move to the next target. So you're kind of like the big brother who uh, I will tell the school bully uh, I will send uh, if they don't leave me alone. Yeah, yeah, or like the you know the 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 poster of uh, you know of an evil monster inside the room, and uh, you know trying to deter people to even even try. Okay, IoT of course is based on the assumption that everything will be connected to everything else, and that means especially hardware. How serious is the threat that rogue devices pose, and how will they possibly impact the future of IoT? So IoT security in general, it's like the the holy grail kind of a of the cybersecurity industry because everybody is trying to uh, uh, to mitigate the risks that uh, the the entire concept of IoT brings uh, brings to the table. Um, from our from our perspective, taking into account that in many cases the IoT platform itself is very is very limited, so encryption will be very limited, and and capabilities of the devices will be very limited. It's up to us at the infrastructure level to make sure that these devices are not being used as a as a manipulating device in order to operate as a as a rogue malicious uh, devices. So we want to make sure that there's no a inline implant to a to an IoT a CCTV camera or to an access control or any device of this uh, of this sort. Making sure that the infrastructure that connects to all of those IoT IoT devices is not compromised to allow the 
exploit of those uh, vulnerable IoT devices. But uh, if people get really, really worried, um, couldn't that sort of throw a monkey wrench in the uh, future development of IoT? Yes, but I, I think uh, in, in to some extent, yes, but I think that people uh, became used to and, you know, th- during these days, you know, people need to get need to get used to, to a lot of new things. But I think that, you know, uh, the f- previous years, people got used to uh, to some vulnerability, to some level of vulnerability within the devices they are using, whether they were mobile devices or applications that they were uh, they were using. So this is uh, yet another uh, another risk that they need to uh, need to mitigate. Now, if you're a critical infrastructure facility, then obviously this should be up uh, IHOP in your list. If it's your, you know, your elderly mother, then, you know, probably uh, she's less prone for uh, hardware-based attacks. As if we didn't have enough to worry about before. Uh, this was Bensi Ben-Attar of Sepio Systems talking about rogue devices and how they pose a threat to corporate IT infrastructure. Uh, Bensi, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you very much, Tim, and keep safe both uh, physically and virtually. We Talk IoT, the smart industry podcast, is sponsored by Microsoft. Microsoft Azure IoT Hub. Highly secure and reliable communication between your IoT application and the devices it manages. Azure IoT Hub provides a cloud-hosted solution backend to virtually connect any device. Extend your solution from the cloud to the edge with per-device authentication, built-in device management, and scaled provisioning. If you need an industrial IoT solution based on Microsoft IoT Hub, then Avnet IoT Connect is your perfect choice. A standardized way to harness IoT so your business can quickly build smart apps and solutions based on the Azure platform. The number of IoT devices has grown from 4 billion in 2015 to 8 or 9 billion worldwide today, heading for 22 billion devices in 2025. In addition, IoT devices are becoming powerful, low-cost, connected, and unobtrusive, and will be used in ways not yet imagined. My colleague, Alan Earls, is joining me today like so many in these troubled times, from his home office in Franklin, Massachusetts, to discuss the question of connectivity. How can we ever hope to keep up with this kind of exponential growth? Are our networks and systems up to the task? Alan, you just wrote a feature for Smart Industry, the IoT Business Magazine, entitled From Baby Steps to Giant Strides. What is your take on this? Uh, Well, fortunately... You know, a lot of the fundamentals of internet connectivity are already very robust. You know, the internet's a pretty bulletproof uh, system, and that's what everything is ultimately built on. For IoT, though, it's similar to, I think, the old last mile problem that people used to talk about in the telecom industry, especially 20 years ago when people were trying to get internet connectivity. But now the issue is not the limits of just twisted pair of wire, but whether all our various schema of wireless connectivity can handle all the growth, deliver the speed, and of course, ensure security that we all need for IoT. 
So certainly there are plenty of companies out there working to develop interesting answers. I think the problem is going to have a solution, maybe several solutions. In your article, you quote a guy named Yanti Kataria, the founder and CEO of Moon Techno Labs, based in Ahmedabad, India, who says the future of IoT springs from human curiosity and restlessness. We are the ones, he says, who stir things up to construct something better, something like smart devices. Is he right? Well, you know, I, I actually was really glad to have that comment from him. Um, and I definitely included it because I think it's important to remind ourselves that IoT is still human designed and ultimately human-centric, we're not yet, and I personally hope never will be in a world entirely operated by AI or robotics, and in which IoT is the ruling factor in everything. Um, so, you know, our creativity can be a good thing, but there are also ways in which our creativity, with quotes around it, can be unfortunate in what it does to our AI systems, for example. There have been rather disturbing instances of AI algorithms that we've embedded in our digital technology turning out to have biases or blindsides we hadn't expected. Uh, one of the most widely publicized instances of this is with facial recognition technology, which in most cases turns out to be well-optimized for Caucasian males, typically it, its inventors, but easily confused when it encounters females or individuals from other racial or ethnic backgrounds. And that's obviously something that can be fixed fairly easily through some kind of retraining of the technology. But the point is... The Google algorithm that was identifying black people as gorillas. Uh, yeah, exactly, which is horrifying, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the point in my mind is not that the technology made a mistake, but that people didn't recognize that it might make a mistake uh, or might not be optimized for everybody. I suspect there are other instances where decision-making and analytic skills that we either deliberately teach to machines or that they infer from watching us and our decision-making may also not lead to optimal results. So I, I think it's going to be one of those things that will take time to sort out and understand what we've created. Just as back uh, a century or more ago, people had to develop, especially designers, more prudent attitudes when working with electricity or handling petroleum products so they wouldn't get explosions or uh, electrocute people. AI will probably develop its own set of fundamental do's and don'ts, rules of thumb, if you will, to avoid these kinds of problems. But essentially, IoT is a good thing, isn't it? The model of ubiquitous IoT technology, some experts say, could help us navigate and solve the current COVID-19 pandemic and future pandemics, too. How? Yeah, that's a really exciting topic, obviously. Um, well, you know, I mean, good data is really at the heart of medicine and always has been. Uh, it's especially true with communicable diseases. You can go back to that famous uh, instance in London in 1854, the famous Broad Street cholera outbreak where Dr. Stone intuited that there might be something causing this that wasn't just uh, something in the air. And he famously removed the pump handle on the neighborhood water pump and then gathered data on where diseases occurred. And by mapping that data, was able to come up with his own sort of germ theory-like explanation for the disease, which went on to tremendously influence public health decisions. So with IoT, we've now got this potential to gather really incredible volumes of data about populations and their interactions, and that's got to have immediate concerning impacts for us on privacy and from a civil liberty standpoint. Um, some com countries have moved really far on this, so we need to watch that side of it. But if anything, through all this, we're probably going to have too much data and uh, too many potential opportunities to see correlations where maybe there aren't any. But the great thing is AI and machine learning can help us with that. If 
there's a potential correlation. Researchers can dig into it further and faster using AI and machine learning to sort things out and determine which things really are correlations and focus on those things that seem to be causation. Okay, IoT and AI go hand in hand, of course. Um, maybe you could give us a couple of other examples of how algorithms using a hybrid physics with AI model will change everyday operations in typical companies. Yeah, well, I had a good chat with AJ Raghavan, Strategic Execution Director uh, for System Science Lab at Park, the Xerox company, uh, famously uh, so influential in the early days of personal computing. He says his organization has been focused on IoT and AI for a long time. And one of the real world examples is their work with the East Japan Railway, which I believe is the company that operates the famous bullet trains. Um, they began by using AI for predictive maintenance and they saw a big opportunity to streamline train operations, no pun intended. They were particularly concerned to be as effective as possible because they have uh, interesting demographic issues in their operations. Their human assets, the most experienced people, are starting to retire, and there are relatively few people coming up through the ranks to replace them. So they really wanted to make sure they were using their people as effectively as possible, and that meant spotting and preventing problems early. And like everyone else, of course, they're facing budget pressures, so it became uh, an opportunity to be very proactive. And they were they able to accomplish much more. Uh, they were able to get their servicing done in the few hours of downtime they had available. And they've applied similar technology looking at um, infrastructure in the state of Victoria and Australia, where they claim, at least in their initial tests, to have a 50-fold payback uh, in looking at rail bridges and road structures, where once upon a time they would have just sent out uh, a pair of individuals to look at a bridge and measure a few things and take some photographs and tap things with a hammer. Now they can continuously monitor these structures using IoT devices, and they can even detect when uh, a structure has been hit by something, a vehicle or uh, you know an object, and look at whether damage has been sustained. Likewise, with weather or, or seismic events, they can get a real-time reading of that, and that's giving them an opportunity to get close to 90% accuracy in terms of what needs fixing and when. So that's going to be a huge savings for them. It looks like they're planning on rolling it out across the state. Of course, that means they have to have very good connectivity out in the outback somewhere. Um, it seems that interconnecting IoT elements is one of the most critical challenges in making IoT seamless and pervasive and for empowering richer applications. At least you write that. Like everything else, connectivity itself is undergoing rapid evolution. Where are we heading? Yeah, Tim. Well, you know, the numbers are numbing. Uh, depending who you talk to, there might be 20 billion devices already connected or soon will be most of the time or all of the time. Some of them we know and love. They're in our cars, our homes, our personal devices, and many are out in the wild, if you will. But in, in terms of real connectivity, which means addressability, so devices can participate in the internet and be found and share information, one of the overhanging issues is the limit of IPv4, which is the addressing system that's been in use for uh, decades, which is gradually being replaced. It only supports, I think, about four or five billion addresses. Um, so IPv6 is in the offing, and that supports a much larger number. I don't know exactly the number. It's it's very, very big, maybe billions of billions. But let's say it takes the address shortage off the table. And that then opens us up to using all these new emerging uh, technologies for connecting uh, in the short range wireless area in particular where you might want to connect 
things in a factory or in a home. Bluetooth, of course, is there, and there are variants. There's low-energy Bluetooth, which offers potentially more nodes, and Bluetooth mesh, which is a fascinating um, idea, as the name implies. The mesh means that you're not just sending messages between Bluetooth and some central station, but from Bluetooth device to Bluetooth device, in effect creating a new network that may be able to reach as much as a kilometer in distance, jumping from one Bluetooth device to the next. Another uh, communication technology that's in the offing or under development is near-field communication, which has a range of a few centimeters. And then there's an idea I, I don't know much about at all, but it's a, a cute name, uh, Light-Fi, Li-Fi, which is basically a, a visible light communication that compares to Wi-Fi. And I, I'm imagining if you can divide the spectrum as we do when using uh, fiber optics, you could probably get a tremendous amount of bandwidth. And then some of the other technologies out there are familiar old RFID, Wi-Fi we've mentioned, Zigbee, which focuses on low cost and very low power consumption, things that might be in a remote environment for a long time and only need to wake up and transmit data once in a while. Uh, in the medium range, there's the rollout of 5G, of course, and also LTE and LP-WAN, the Low Power Wide Area Network, which includes a whole sub-list of different uh, protocols. Then we've got familiar wired Ethernet and uh, so on. So there's just a whole lot going on on the communication and networking front. As I said before, I think the problems will be solved. There are a lot of pathways there being paved. Of course, that is not really a new problem either. I remember uh, doing an interview with Nick Negroponte of the MIT Media Lab about 20 years ago. And he said, give me enough bandwidth and I will move the world. <laughs> that sounds like Nick. Yeah, he talks that way. <laughs> yeah, in indeed. One area which is generating a lot of interest right now is the concept of digital twins. What's going on there? Yes, it makes me think of some of the stories that Mark Twain used to write. Um, yeah, that was actually a new one for me. I hadn't been familiar with it, but I dug into it a little bit, and it's not quite so novel in, in some sense. A digital twin is basically you know, a replica of any living or non-living physical entity. So when you think about it, we've had things like that for a while. Digital maps, flight simulators, they're, they're sort of a little similar in concept. But in this case, the digital twin idea refers to a, essentially creating a replica of a physical thing, a machine, or even a person or process. Um, and then that twin or model mimics as accurately as possible what's happening with the real thing or allows you to simulate and test something you want to do with that real thing. So, for example, in the case of a human digital twin, a medical person might be able to simulate a treatment option for me or rehearse surgery. If, I'm, if I need an operation, they can play with my digital twin before they start stabbing me with sharp things. With industrial systems, this can be viewed, too, as an extension on the predictive maintenance idea. A human can then, in effect, see the totality of a system and understand it better and further plan or, or prepare uh, maintenance strategies or perhaps integrate things better or determine new product of, uh, you know, new, new, new ways of operating with a given asset without risking the asset in the process. It takes advantage of all the data we have and all the simulation that we have to create a, a great end product. Uh, reading your article, I learned a new buzzword, namely uh, tactile IoT. The idea, if I understand it correctly, is to use robotic hardware, sensors, and actuators to allow operators to perform manual tasks at a distance or in 
unsafe environments. Could you give us some background? Yeah, I'm sort of like augmented reality, which has gotten a lot of uh, attention, but is primarily a, a visual thing, really, in most cases. Um, tactile aims to give people literally the feel of something and maybe the ability to perform more nuanced actions through an IoT intermediary than would have been possible in the past. I think a departure point for thinking about it are things like the Da Vinci robot, so-called, um, which isn't really a robot, but an extension of a human surgeon so that they can perform less intrusive surgeries, maybe more delicate surgeries than might have been uh, possible cutting somebody open and digging your hands into them. Um, empowering some of this are some of the new technologies ranging right down to microelectronic mechanical systems, MEMS, that are literally microscopic devices. Uh, but I think most of the attention at the moment is on a more familiar scale. And again, looking back at the not too distant past, this reminds me a lot of fly-by-wire technology, which uh, has revolutionized or at least changed how aircraft are manufactured and flown. And uh, it, mostly for the better, there have been cases when that didn't work out so well, like the Airbus where the operators were allowed to perform a maneuver through electronics that ended up ripping the tail off. That's since been uh, fixed. <laughs> but ultimately, tactile, <laughs> I think, is going to be a, a, a challenge because literal feel, the touch we get from picking up something soft or hard is pretty hard to mimic. We're, we're getting more sophisticated in how we do it, but we still have a ways to go. So it's a, it's a great idea, but it's not quite there yet, in my view. So it looks like the future of IoT will be very exciting and will bring stuff that we can't even imagine today. Um, Alan Earls, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your insights with our listeners. And you will be sharing them with our readers in the next edition of Smart Industry, the IoT Business Magazine. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tim. And now, one more thing. The box that never stops delivering. Alexander Cote wants to change the world of mail order with an intelligent box, which he says can be reused up to a thousand times. The founder and head of technology at German French startup Living Packets has set himself and his young company a truly ambitious goal, namely to put 1.5 billion smart boxes into circulation, replacing 100 billion disposable boxes within 10 years. We want to make shipping more efficient and sustainable, he says. His brainchild, a black-green suitcase-like package made of foamed thermoplastic, has an internet connection that allows customers to track shipments via an app. The time seems ripe. Mail order companies have declared war on plastic and packaging. In Germany, grocers such as Rewe and Edeka have recently decided to pack vegetables in edible sleeves instead of foil. The software giant SAP has banned plastic from its offices and events. The sporting goods manufacturers Adidas recently introduced its first recyclable sneakers. By comparison, the mail-order business is lagging far behind. Large online distributors such as Amazon still mostly use disposable cardboard packages, which end up as household waste. Living Packets wants to stand out with a few high-tech features. 
Their black and green box boasts built-in sensors and a camera that provides additional information on the state of the parcel's contents, as well as a digital display that shows the address the package is destined for. Additional packaging waste, such as adhesive tape and filling material, are eliminated by a net braced to the bottom of the parcel and a resealable lock. Kota maintains that the cost per shipment can be reduced between 2 and 3 euros per use, plus postage. The box is not sold, but rather rented out for a fee. He calls this business model packaging as a service. A test run at the French online shop C-Discount has shown that the packing process itself can be up to 30% faster. Living Packets is in talks with delivery companies in Germany, France, and Switzerland about possible partnerships. That was We Talk IoT, the Smart Industry Podcast. You can read all the latest from Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine, by visiting our website at www.smart-industry.net, where you'll find hundreds of feature articles about everything from smart manufacturing and cognitive computing to autonomous driving and how IoT and AI are making business smarter. There, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Smart Industry Updates. I'm Tim Cole. See you back next month when, once again, we talk IoT.